Hey there, Freedom Fighters. My name is Andrew Warner. I interview entrepreneurs for an audience of entrepreneurs. Joining me is someone whose software I bet everybody in my audience has used at one point or another. In fact, when I went to look for your name, uh, the guest is Russ Heddleston. Russ, when I went to look for your name in my inbox and I looked for Dropbox, I think just about every investor update, every investor communication that was sent to me was sent using DocSend, your software. I feel like this software, or I thought before I, I read up on you for today's interview, I just felt like, what a simple, brilliant idea. Russ, a couple of his friends, realized that we want to send documents to each other, and we want to know if people have read them and control who gets to see the documents. Simple, beautiful, elegant, set off on TechCrunch, whatever the conference was called at the time, hit it big with the tech community, grow to enterprise, sell to Dropbox for $165 million. Super simple, super successful. I just read this story of how he did it that our producer put together. I can't believe how much you've been through, Russ. I don't know how you're still standing. Did you Have you seen a therapist or at least a good bartender? <laughs> uh, well, thanks, Andrew. It's great to be on the on the podcast and I'd be happy to, to, to dive in and kind of give you any behind the scenes info that you think might be useful for the audience. I'm going to start with the win, and then we'll go back and figure out how we got it. And I should say, this interview is sponsored by the company that will help you hire great developers. It's called Lemon.io, and by the company that's going to allow you to invest in art. And I'll tell you later why you should go to masterworks.art slash Mixergy. But Russ, take me to the day the sale went through. Do you remember what that was like? Yeah, I do. There's so much that happens like before and during and after that I don't know what other people think of typically with an acquisition. Um, you know, there, there's just so much work that goes into it. The amount of diligence, especially for anything that's a pretty sizable acquisition, like the first one I, I had at Facebook, it was a talent acquisition, right? So that was basically just us getting hired and paid a little bit more to like not work on the other thing. But especially when you're going through like a whole business acquisition where they're acquiring it for the revenue, there is a ton of diligence that has to go into that. And, uh, you know, so <laughs> Because you just kind of like run ragged for months because uh, then you, you, you have to get to the LOI and then so you have to have a business sponsor and then you're talking to both sides and then, um, you know, then you have to go from LOI to the definitive. And so you got like your whole law team that's going all in on this. And then you, you typically haven't told anybody at your company that you're working on this. So everyone at the company is just kind of like, you know, the CEO is gone. And then <laughs> there are all these things that can go wrong. And I think... And a lot of like the way I've heard it said in any any good deal, fair deal, both sides are like a little unhappy um, is like something I've heard. So in our case, it was it was one. Don't get me wrong. Great, great acquisition, especially because of how little money we raised. But we were performing super well. We were profitable at the time. We didn't need to sell. So I think they th thought they paid too much. I thought they paid too little. So, you know, by the time the, the deal closed, like I was just really tired and also just like kind of glad it was over. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of a relief to be able to tell everyone else working at, at Docsend. <laughs> it's like, like oh no, Russ isn't just bad at his job. Decided not to come into the work for you know a couple of months. He was actually going and working through this selling the company process. <laughs> and at one point, it looked like it wasn't going to happen. Like the business was actually how close did you get to zero dollars in the bank? Um, we had a little less than a million in our, in our bank account. Um, mm -hmm. but at the time we were burning quite a bit. And so it was never less than six months of runway, but okay. man, even approaching six months of runway, if you're the person who's staring at your bank account, that's really stressful. So yeah, in, 
you know, our kind of brief history is we raised 1.7 million in a seed round in 2013 at a 7 million pre. So as people complain in the market right now about, oh my God, prices have come down. Like, well, they just kind of reset. It's like, wasn't that long ago that like our seed round was a, that was a perfectly reasonable seed round in 2013. We then raised an $8 million series A at a 19.5 million pre-money valuation in 2015, preemptively from a, a VC I just really liked, but we didn't really have much revenue at the time. And I'm so happy we raised that money then because it allowed us to like iterate until we figured it out. But what happened in 2018 was that we were selling up market and sales enablement, and we had uh, and still have some competitors that have raised hundreds of millions of dollars in that mm -hmm. vertical. And it was a uh, kind of baptism by fire for me of selling into the enterprise. You know, I'm a software engineer by background and product manager. Like, what do I know about enterprise sales? Well, now I know a lot about enterprise sales. <laughs> uh, talking to a guy I know at ScaleVP, kind of notorious enterprise SaaS investor, he was telling me that a technical CEO takes them like two, two and a half years to figure out enterprise sales. And I'm like, that described me in a nutshell. But while we were selling up market, you know, we were trying to win these, you know, 10, well, more like $50,000, $100,000 contracts. And we were just losing. I don't know about you, but like losing isn't fun. I hate losing. It's mm -hmm. it's especially not fun. So we were just losing, and I kind of saw the writing on the wall of like, we can't raise a lot of money in this you know use case sales enablement because of these other competitors. They're targeting us. It feels really mean and unfair. They're undercutting us in all these deals. We've got the better product, but like we might just lose. So yeah, that 2018 was a was a stressful year. Um, <laughs> happy to take it from wherever from Let's, here, wherever you think you want to go. You know what? You mentioned your your previous company. Let's talk about how that started off. Was that, um, it was called Pursuit. You started that when you were still in business school, right? Yep. I started that while I was in, in business school out at Harvard um, uh, with two friends of mine who were mm -hmm. software engineers at Trulia. Um, and so I still keep in touch with them. They're awesome guys. Um, the, it, that, was, that was a great learning. Uh, working on that it was we had a great domain pursuit.com i remember finding this guy in massachusetts that owned it and convincing him to take twenty thousand bucks for the domain because wow. i figured out that he really wanted to buy a boat and so i was like <laughs> think about it your boat or the domain name i was like you've been squatting in this domain name for like 15 years like yeah. now is the time you should buy a boat and so he's like okay so he sold it for twenty thousand dollars and then we raised a small seed round of 500k it was really hard to raise that i called it my pity round of funding because people would be like we don't really know what you're building here but you seem really enthusiastic and we like you so we'll, we'll give you some money so raised a seed round what was the original idea that you were building um so for me in my uh, Previous company, I, I was the I ran the engineering team, um, and it's really hard to recruit software engineers. And you always want to have a referral program in place, but it's hard to like motivate people to use that. So we were building software that would help motivate like people to make referrals, and specifically multi uh, multiple degrees outside of your network. So right. I could ask you, Andrew, like, hey, do you know anyone for this job? You might know, oh, I know someone in my network, and then we'd split the referral bonus, you and I. It turns out that just from a behavioral psychology perspective doesn't work. So we were about this is a what year you did into at, it. <laughs> at tr at uh, Trillia, this is what you were doing at the real estate company that you worked with. Is that right? Uh, it came from the time I was managing an engineering team at Graystripe, which is a uh, I didn't mobile ad there. network. Okay. Yeah. So I interned at Trulia back in 2006 uh, when they were just like five people while I was still hey. an undergrad. Okay. It was just kind of like my you know nights and weekends coding gig on okay. the side. They, they paid great. Pete and Sam were awesome. Like it was really wow. fun. But then out of uh, uh, grad school at Stanford, I've worked for Graystripe, joined as like employee seven there. See. 
and kind of built out uh, the engineering team. And then Pursuit was a product that solved a problem that I had yeah. in that role. But in building it out, we didn't do enough diligence to begin with. In retrospect, I looked back and I realized that if I had done more user interviews before we started writing code for Pursuit, I could have figured out that it wasn't going to work oh, you without know what? writing any code. You know, Russ, for so many of us who are watching this from the outside, it made so much sense. This seemed like a brilliant idea. And there were a few companies who were pursuing this approach, right? The idea that your employees and your network know the best people, they just don't have enough incentive. Why pay a headhunter when you could just reward the people in your network, in your, in your company, who are bringing in their friends who are similar to them anyway? That seemed to make sense. How could you have known? What could you have asked people? What could you have done as far as research that would have told you this is not going to fly? I actually sat down and wrote a postmortem on it, it. Uh, and, uh -huh. and why it doesn't work. We could do a whole like podcast on it, but the incentives weren't well aligned. The people who are best at referring others care about their reputation. And if you mix money in there, it becomes unclear what someone's motivation is for referring mm. a candidate. And so you've got the headhunting world, which is just mm -hmm. like straight up money's involved. And then you've got the Silicon Valley network of people who are referring other candidates because it's like a karma thing. And if you mix money and karma, then, you know, so we, we found that we were connecting a lot of people to jobs. They were just going around our system. So maybe there's something there in terms of like what to do differently, but that's the that's kind of the crux of the behavioral psychology that I, I did not understand. And you think you understood. could have asked something? How could you have figured that out ahead of time? Because if you would have asked me, I would have said, you know what? I do make a lot of referrals. People thank me for years afterwards. Yeah, actually, you know what? I take it back. As we we're talking, I realized I would have told you, no, I can't take money for it because it would right. Be we could have mocked it up. Weird. We could have tried to just like make it a smoke and mirrors type of thing, you know, to try it out. Uh, and and so yeah, we were going to pivot to the kind of next idea on our list. There's another tough learning from pursuit is that you think like, okay, I think we can prototype this in like just a couple months. And then suddenly you're like one year later, you're like, oh, dang, everything takes longer than you think it will. And as an engineer, you're always like, I bet I could do that in a weekend. <laughs> and then uh, we were going to pivot to the next idea on our list. And Facebook was an early user of, of what we had built. And so they, uh, we interviewed at LinkedIn and Facebook and decided to go to Facebook and, um, I had a great experience there. I got to, to see the company okay. go public, but yeah, pursuit, like great, great learning opportunity. Did uh, Facebook end up with that domain? Uh, no. So in talent acquisitions, you, you often don't want to acquire the company assets. Mm -hmm. Like there's a fair amount of diligence you have to do if you're going to actually acquire the assets of a business. And so oftentimes you, you just don't, if you just want the people, uh, you know, and you know, like we think we spent close to a million dollars on the, the, the diligence for, you know, the acquisition with Dropbox. So anyway, it, it's certain, it's smaller dollar amounts. Like if you don't need it, then you, you just don't take it. So that's why I say it's a, a talent acquisition, but no, I think uh, there is some other company using it now. I see a 501c3 nonprofit is on the site now. Mm -hmm. Okay. Nice uh, exit for you. I mean, like you, you didn't suffer financially. You ended up doing okay. You got into Facebook, a company that was clearly on the rise at the time. The next step was what? Was it you and two other friends now sitting around and saying, what can we do? What's the next business idea? Right. So while I was at uh, Facebook, two of my other friends from undergrad at Stanford, also software engineers, uh, that I worked with at Graystripe, uh, Graystripe had sold. Uh, that company acquired them like Dave and Tony, the, you know, they had like, kind of they got their earn out and then they were leaving to start something. And it's hard to find people 
that you've got a history with and really mm-hmm. trust to work on a new company with. It's like the whole founder dating problem. So I made the difficult decision to leave, you know, an amazing opportunity at Facebook and go work with Dave and Tony. And the second time around, you know, with them, then I'd obviously told them about pursuit and kind of like the process there. We decided to like do more diligence on an idea before we started building it out. Uh, because our temptation is to write code as software engineers. And if you're not writing code, you just kind of be like, oh my God, what am I doing every day? So we had this process and we would like each day rotate whose apartment we went to in San Francisco. And we had a spreadsheet of ideas. I was like, what are the things you find exciting? And we just, we'd go through and we'd like just prove something was a bad idea, like in like a, a, you know, a week or two. And so we kind of got through a bunch of them and then with uh, docs and, and I realized this is like an unsexy way of describing how one creates a company because I feel like the, the popular version is like, oh my God, like I just saw, I have known since an early age, I had to go solve this problem or I like, I saw it at a past company and like, no, the three of us just kind of sat around a coffee table, went through ideas and then tried to poke holes in it. And then we'd go off and interview people. We'd also go off and interview any founders we had found who were like, had done something similar in the past. We we're really just trying to approach it from all the angles. And with Docsend, you know, the, the theory was like, hey, why do people still send so many attachments? This is crazy. And so we went and talked to a lot of people like, why do you send attachments? And we talked to like, um, even went to like Google and Microsoft and Box Dropbox. And I was like, hey, here's this concept that, you know, ended up becoming Docs. And I was like, why don't you guys build this? And, you know, that, which is, you know, I think as a startup, you have more to gain than to lose by doing that. And the response I got was, that is a good idea. We might do it someday, but not in the next two years. We even got a the couple. The idea acquis- was what? The idea was, the idea was like people, uh-huh. send and track links. So add a lot of value to the sender of a document. So they're willing to adopt using a link and not an attachment and make it really mm-hmm. easy for the recipient to view that information in document form. It's not, that's not a crazy concept. <laughs> so the, the note, the thing that you noticed was people are sending attachments. And if you ask them why it's because it's just easier to use Microsoft word or whatever I've got or the PDF and send it over. That makes sense. What's the what's the problem that you noticed that they had that was so big that they would be willing to try this new thing? In some of the first users for Docsend were just other founders raising capital, and mm-hmm. the the TAM was never like the it was never the goal to just to like have it be for founders. We in our interviews we talked to salespeople, we talked to people in financial services, we obviously talked to uh, founders, we talked to a lot of people who are sending information externally, and and it's so it's not so much that like sending an attachment is a problem. It's more around that information. How important is it? Like how much downside is there if that information gets into the wrong hands? You know, mm-hmm. so how how what, what does security mean? And then like, what do you stand to gain or lose by knowing if they have or have not read that information ahead of, let's just say a meeting, like how many times you've gotten on a call and say, have you had time to review the documents? Right? Cause if you haven't, this meeting is going to go super differently than if you've spent a whole bunch of time reading through everything. Right? So that scene state information can be super helpful. And so some of our first users were founders raising capital. Cause I had just been through this process with pursuit and I wasn't building docs and exclusively for myself, like I was with the pursuit concept, but I was myself a user of this would, would be a user of this. And so, yeah, we found that fundraising really high urgency use case where the scene state information is really valuable and you don't want your documents to go beyond the intended audience, but it also has to be something that's pretty easy to use for the recipient. Otherwise they just won't bother. So you kind of had to hit all of these things on the head and, and then people would change their behavior. 
I don't, you know what? I, before Docsend, what I would do is I would use a Bitly link that was created for an individual user that went to a Google Drive file that mm -hmm. would then tell me if they opened the link or not, because if they if they followed the link, the number on, on the Bitly stats would go up. Yeah. That seemed like such a narrow use case <laughs> that I didn't think of it as a business, but you're seeing it much bigger in a, in a much more painful way as a founder trying to raise money. And, trying to figure out, did they even look at the documents that I sent over? Are they pretending when they say they care? Are they pretending when they have objections to my idea? Right? Yeah. There's a internal product at Facebook. We had, I think it was called Pixelmate or something or pixel tracker where, um, I did some design work at Facebook and you had kind of put up your, your mock in this tool. And then it would show you the faces of everyone who's seen that, that design. Uh -huh. And so then I would do crafty things. Like I would send this out to a group and say like, uh, let me know if you have any feedback. Otherwise I will assume this design is approved because as a product manager, I'm just trying to like move things forward. Right. Yeah. And so, and so then, uh, so the default, you have to say, you know, no. Uh, and, but then, you know, so if nothing comes back, great, we go forward, but I would also check to see who's looked at it. So if, yeah. if they have looked at it and then not responded, they have approved it. They can't come back saying like, oh, you didn't give me enough time or something like right. that. And then if like Zuck, if you saw like Zuck on like seeing the, your, your mock, <laughs> you're like, oh my gosh. So it kind of, I don't know. It gave me some insight into the joy of scene state and what one can do with ah, it. Uh, okay. And so, yeah, for you, you might be thinking, ah, oh, niche use case. And for me, I'm thinking, why are there this many billions of attachments sent every year? This just right. doesn't make any when sense. These should all be links. Way. Yeah. Why aren't they all links? Like you can update yeah. it after you send it. Like how about that as a yeah. crazy concept? And I was like, but there is a link sending feature in Dropbox, in Drive. Like why aren't people using this, right? Like you just kind of follow that train of logic. Why weren't they using that? There's just, it's a little too clunky. Um, and uh, I mean, it's certainly better now, like now that your people are sharing. Um, and the, the other thing is that we we looked at the world in terms of document creation we, we looked at the world of document creation and collaboration going hand in hand. So even in like 2013, mm -hmm. we're like, okay, Google and Microsoft are going to win, like have already won the document creation game. It's very hard to compete with Word or PowerPoint. Now you're finally starting to see some other players come up in like Coda mm -hmm. or some of the online spreadsheet no stuff. Shame. But at the time we were like, yeah. okay, the, they're going to they're gonna win that. And then the emphasis then becomes on like, what's the external sending piece? That to us was interesting. And then there's mm -hmm. a question, will people pay for that? And our, our thesis was that yes, businesses will pay for the feature sets that Google and Microsoft are neglecting to build as part of their suites, and they've still neglected to build it. So that was kind of, you, we, we just failed to prove that Docsign was a bad idea in like the first like few months of like going through all of this thinking, poking all of the holes and everything, being like, show me why we shouldn't build this. And then at the end of the day, we're like, I think this should exist in the world, <laughs> like just as a concept. And asking the companies that should naturally be integrating these as features of their software, why aren't you doing it? And them saying, mm -hmm. we're not gonna do it anytime soon. Wow, I just love that idea. Was there any other idea that got close to making it that maybe in retrospect you look at and you say, so I want you to do that? Uh, yeah, we were going to build basically, uh, the other one we got pretty close on was basically what G2 Crowd is today. And in 2013, there was clearly a need for a new iteration on online reviews of software products. Mm -hmm. And so we, we decided not to, to build an online review, but G2 Crowd has done very well for themselves. So it was, we were correct in like observing that that was, it would have been a good time to start like a competitor to that, that particular company. Why didn't you do that? What was it about that that told you it's not the right move for us? 
Well, I think G2 Crowd also had a number of years where it just took them a while to take off. So we we just didn't find find there was as much urgency in that use case in 2013. You know, since mm-hmm. then the just number of online SaaS vendors has gone nuts. So the need for it is is more pronounced. But in 2013, it wasn't as much. And this you know document link sending thing, the three of us just got more excited about it. And so at a certain point, you got to decide and move forward. And so we're like, we're doing it. (laughs) I like that it also can generate revenue from the beginning. It can stand up on its own. You don't need a big crowd of people using Docsend for it to work. It just does. That's actually an entirely different uh, thing. We were not very good at charging for Docsend at first. The first two years, (laughs) it was just free. You know, it took us like, well, it took two years to build it and launch it. So we launched it at TechCrunch Disrupt in New York. <laughs> and then we were, uh, it was just free. And then our why, investors were Why free and why two years? Before we get into the, the next part of it, why was it two years of building when, I, I think I'm, I know I have, Russ, oversimplified your business so much, probably because it is so simple. I just opened up a Docker earlier from a few months ago, typed in a password, opened it up, it worked so naturally. And I think maybe because it worked so well, I underestimated how much work went into making it work well. But if you're looking back at the first two years, why did it take two years to get that first version out? Uh, it only well, it took one year before we launched it. So what we did okay. is we launched it. And we started in March of uh, 2013. Uh, we did basically six months of prototyping, uh, and we just made it as ugly and off the shelf as possible. Not we weren't investing anything in design. It was just literally the functionality. We didn't even have a marketing site, so we could give you know, login accounts to people in exchange for feedback. So that was like the the prototyping. And then these were the founders we gave it to, to track their pitch decks. And so that was just a very quick and dirty thing. And then once we convinced ourselves like, Hey, they do like it. We, we should probably hire a team. That's when we went out and raised our seed round. And then we learned a ton on that first version of the, of Docsend. And so we scrapped it. Huh? We just started over from scratch. And we said, okay, now we're going to rebuild it. We're going to make it look great. And then that took us another six months. Uh, we had to hire a couple engineers and then we went and got a design firm and then we launched it at tech Disrupt in 2014, basically. Okay. Uh, and so that took the first year and you're right. That, that version was like relatively straightforward and simple. We had another year of just free. And then we started charging like 10 bucks a user a month because we didn't know if it was going to be B2B or B2C, right? Like think of like all the use cases for just documents being sent everywhere. Why shouldn't everyone use Docsend? And we pretty quickly realized that, uh, it's not for there, there's higher urgency in some use cases than others. Um, mm-hmm. And so we ended up coming up with this like ECCS um, where people love Docsend. If it's external, uh, if it's custom, if it's critical, and if it's sensitive. If a document fits all of those things, like Docsend is the best thing on the planet for that use case. There are other use cases that might not have one of those. And then Docsend's clearly a nice to have kind of thing. Still, still useful, okay. but like becomes more nice to have than like need to have. Okay. And so I get it. It wasn't a whole year of building out your vision. It was a year of prototyping, getting feedback, adjusting, fixing, then making it look really good. And then finally at the end of that year launching, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's what it is. What did, how did the idea change as you were starting to show it to people and having them use it? What did you not expect? Um, if you look back at our 2013 pitch deck, it is pretty much exactly what we built. So I think we did enough research up front to know like what was in scope for Docsend and uh, what they would like about it. Um, 
what we ended up evolving over time was we have a full data room feature set in Doxen now. And so like that, that's only something we could have done on top of like the kind of the first product. We've also got a full e-signature set of like features in, in Docsend, which is awesome for a lot of those use cases. We're adding, you know, video support is something that's coming up. Um, we're they're just like, we're, once we got product market fit in the initial section, it was interesting to observe like where we could evolve from there uh, and getting into new things. I think one of the things I didn't anticipate early on was how controversial Docsend would be on Twitter with investors putting up a huge stink about Docsend links over a many year period. As far as I know, they're still complaining on Twitter. And that was funny for a few reasons. One, it's free advertising for Docsend. Awesome. <laughs> that helps. Okay. Yeah. Like I even see like Docsend come up in like, you know, praying for exits or other like meme accounts. <laughs> <laughs> People talking about Docsend. And so VCs complaining about it on Twitter, but then those VCs are also self-selecting to advertise that they're not especially founder friendly because mm. when you're the investor, you've got all the money, right? And like you should, as the investor, do whatever makes the entrepreneur's life easiest. Like it doesn't really cost you anything if the entrepreneur can see if you're reading it or not. That shouldn't really inform your investment decision around it. So I did not expect that Docsend would be controversial or as controversial as it was. They, there are a couple of things. There are some who just said, look, if you send me the PDF, I just have an ongoing record of the PDFs that I know I can keep of what you've said you're going to do and what you've done. And that's helpful. There are others who said, I don't like you spying on whether I looked at it or not, maybe without even any reason. It just felt a little bit weird and icky. And then basically, I don't remember them being the kinds of people who are not founder friendly. I just remember them being the kind of people who are so privileged that they could tell you to go and give them a presentation in French and you'd have to go and learn French just because <laughs> they were just the people you wanted to please. And yeah. that's the way they were carrying totally. themselves with this. And they basically said, it's easier for me this way. Do it easier for me if you want to work with me. Yeah. Um, and that's the, right. the age old question is like who in this awkward dance between an entrepreneur and uh, the venture capitalist who, who holds the power and the market kind of dictates that. Like it was always the case from early on that the most confident founders used Docsend. And the founders were like, I'll just do whatever the VC wants. Fine, right. they can just send the PDF. That's, I mean, whatever, that works too. It's just the ones who were the most confident. And that usually meant they had like done it before or like they had more of a, a kind of ability to negotiate with the investor. Like the, those people have always loved Docsend. Eventually, I think you even put, a, I know you did, you put a feature in that said how long people were spending on each page. And there were some investors. Am I right about that? Oh, we've had that from the very beginning, time per page. Yeah. Yeah. So investors then would sometimes have somebody just sit and click on it to make sure that they were sending people the signal that they were spending time on. And truthfully, I have to tell you, Russ, I've done that too. Now that I say it out loud, I shouldn't point at other people. Someone would send me a deck and I go, I want them to see that this is something I've considered. I know it doesn't take me that long to read it, but I could see they put effort into it. I'm going to pause on this page for a few seconds and then I'll, and I'll go to the next page just to signal to them that I care. There are a couple of things and that surprise people. One is that if you switch tabs, we will pause tracking. So I get some investors to be like, ha ha ha, I've, I've mm. fooled you by switching tabs. I'm like, no, we actually pause the tracking. Uh, and so that doesn't fool us. Um, and it was surprisingly annoying to go through and figure out every browser and even every browser version has like different little signals. They'll tell uh -huh. you if you switch tabs or like in focus, out of focus type of things. 
and then getting like the per page tracking to be accurate across all of them. And we had to go back and support really old browsers that even Microsoft doesn't support like versions of IE because banks will be using really old browsers. So there's just a lot of stuff we had to, to build in there to like make all that information accurate. Um, but yeah, people, people really appreciated it, um, that it, that it was so accurate. And then on the investor side, we started publishing stats about the average view time because yeah, investors were doing what you're saying where they're like kind of modifying their behavior, but like the average read through a deck is only a few minutes anyway. You like, you might think that you're unique and flip, 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 flip. Mm. You're not, that's <laughs> what everyone does. <laughs> and so uh, it, it really is uh, something that I'm entertained by that we created a new social norm around like, who is allowed to track what and what does that mean? And then, you know, like one of the things we said early on was that as a justification for the per page tracking, it's kind of like a digital body language in the sense that if I'm yeah. in a meeting with you, Andrew, and you're just on your phone the whole time, that just kind of tells me you're pretty checked out and don't really care. You know, in the same way, if I send you a link to my deck, something I poured my whole life into, and you don't even bother to read it ahead of the meeting, like, okay, you just... You just didn't take the time to read it. That's good for me to know because that's just kind of where you're at. So that, that seemed super reasonable to us as an explanation. But yes, it, <laughs> depending on who you were, some people I think were a little irrationally uh, uh, angry about, about this new newfound power that entrepreneurs were given. All right. I should say my sponsor is Lemon.io. If you're out there listening to me and you're looking for developers, I urge you to go to Lemon.io slash Mixergy. They will match you with a developer from their network. They will take great care of you. And by that, I mean, they actually have a human being there to make sure that you are matched properly and that you have their replacement guarantee. And they're going to do their 24-hour matching. All you have to do is go to lemon.io slash Mixergy. Right now, they'll get you inexpensive developers from countries where they're going to appreciate how much you're paying them, even though even though it's less rust than they'd be paid if they were uh, in San Francisco. It's more than they get paid when they're uh, in their home countries. They're happy to have these relationships with people who find them on lemon.io slash Mixergy and the team at Lemon will connect you. Oh, I should say, if you use my URL, you'll also get a bigger discount than other people have from the same company, from lemon.io slash Mixergy. Cool. All right. Thank you. You got to keep that in mind. I got an idea. I got a sense that you're going to start another company. Are you, do you feel like you're at that place? You're, you're laughing that off? I feel like you are. I don't think, I think you'd be a great advisor because you seem like you're someone who doesn't have the, the you, don't, you don't have a BS part to you which I, I do, you don't have it. And so I think you'd just be a good advisor, but I feel like you're, you love creating and that there's that maybe you sold too early to Dropbox. It's clearly grown a lot since then. I feel like you have, maybe you've seen the inside of Dropbox and you're saying to yourself, I could do better than this. Well, I know well, I got just something. Just to clarify one thing, I, I, I will say that uh, like it, I got this feedback from a lot of other founders when I was you know, we were going through the acquisition process and everyone just said it's a mm -hmm. personal decision when you decide to sell. So I, and I actually, in retrospect, think that's true. So, you know, it's, it's not that we sold too early or too late or whatever. We sold our company and, you know, that is what it is. I think Dropbox is great and very natural acquirer for it. I don't mean to say that as a way of beating yourself up. I, I mean, or beating you up. I feel like you've got a multi-billion dollar business in you. And I'm, and I'm feeling like that's the next step for you at some point. Do you think that I'm right about that? I don't know you that well. I'm just guessing based on what I've seen in your past, some of it that we haven't talked about yet. And that's and what you built with Docsend. I will say I, I love software. It's just really fun. It's and building software companies is just 
awesome. Like we're alive at such a interesting time where there's just lots of software left built in my opinion. I even did my master's at Stanford in human computer interaction. And my theory was that most software can be built. It just shouldn't be built or it's not the right thing to build. <laughs> and one of the guys I did classes with and projects with was Mike Krieger. So, uh, he was one of the co-founders of Instagram. So, you know, it's that my thesis still holds true that I think that there's, there's a lot left to build. And, uh, yeah, so I, I sometimes look around and I feel like there isn't. We've done it all, and now there are five of everything. And then I feel that's why we're all going to crypto because we want to challenge ourselves to do something almost too stupid to see if we can make it work anyway because everything does seem to have been built in software. What do you see is still left out there to build? I like remembering the late 1800s as a period, not personally, but having read about it. Uh, at the late yeah. 1800s, it was also kind of generally considered that humanity had built everything. And two really funny, notable exceptions, humanity had not invented the mousetrap yet or the paperclip. <laughs> so, uh, you know, part of me agrees with you, Andrew, like, yeah, maybe we've built it all. But then I think, no, we definitely have not. Uh, we, have, we have not built all, all the software. I mean, I've got like ideas in my own head, like options for like what I might start if I did something again. Um, and everyone's like, oh, I just wish I had a great idea. And my thinking around that is usually like pick a problem space. Like, are there, are there still inefficiencies in how businesses are run? And the answer is absolutely. <laughs> like, What's one that you see that you may not pursue and maybe you could actually, you seem like the kind of person who would tell us even what you are thinking of pursuing just so you could uh, do that devil's advocate thing that you were doing before. <laughs> What's an uh, idea that you're running through? Um, I actually don't want to say any of them just because I still am employed by like Dropbox right now. We're still working through mm. the integration. So more, more of like a technical plead the fifth type of thing. But okay. uh, at, you know, just the, but going after a particular yeah problem space, uh, I have been investing in companies in the last year, which is a ton of fun, uh, actually, um, uh, just to, to get involved at, at that level. And I mean, I think I'd say if anything, my brain always gravitates towards just boring B2B SaaS software. That's what I like. I, I gave, uh, yeah, as the walk talking through ideas of friend, they're like, yeah, all of your ideas are just like problems that need a solution and people are willing to pay for. And I'm like, absolutely. That is exactly where my brain goes. Like if I have, like, if I was known for in my career, like building useful software that people pay money for, I'd be like, great. You can put that <laughs> on my tombstone. I'd be very proud of that. <laughs> All right. We were talking about how the most confident uh, entrepreneurs were using Docsend. I feel like you were very confident in that early raise. I think you told our producer you spent only two weeks on fundraising and you're able to close it out quickly, that's the time that you gave yourself because you knew you could do it based on your experience, right? Right. When Dave, Tony, and I started Docsend, we each put in some money that wasn't savings, just you know, money that we had. Um, we'd you know, been through an exit before, and so we were you know, more financially stable, but we didn't want to foot the bill for hiring a, a team. Like, we were happy to foot the bill for ourselves. And, and, and mm -hmm. like it spend at least a year on this, see if we can find something. And so then when we were like, okay, we're at the point where we need to start hiring engineers so we can go faster. Um, having had my experience at pursuit, I was like, okay, I don't want this to drag out into a six month pity round. Like I want to do it like fast <laughs> and get to no or get to yes, but that's what I want to do. So I like lined up, I don't know, 30, 40 meetings in a two week window um, right at the beginning of September. And I remember this because I went to Burning Man the week before. 
So like before Burning Man, I like set up all my meetings for the first two weeks of September. I went off to Burning Man, had a great time, and I came back and then I was in pitch mode. <laughs> so like back to back because I want to do them all in a condensed period. And if the answer was no, then okay, fine. We'll just go back. We'll make more progress. We'll tweak things. You know, we'll, we'll see. Maybe we need to get some more traction or something before we pass the bar and can find an investor so we can start hiring other people. That wasn't a big deal. But I just didn't want to spend six months doing it. So... I would say I was more confident in the process and how the game works. And so we got a ton of no's, by the way. It's very distressing for most startups going through the fundraising process. You get belittled. A lot of people are like, do you really think you've got what it takes? You just, you get a lot of no's Mm -hmm. from people that just, it's not very confidence inspiring, like, or it's not good for your ego, Uh, but you only need one Yes. How did you keep your confidence up? Um, How did you keep your confidence up? Oh, by giving myself a deadline. I was like, for two weeks? Yeah, it'll be fine. I can absolutely get through this. <laughs> and so I, the, we were getting near the end of the two weeks, and I was like, well, I guess we're just not going to raise right now. And uh, Uncork was one of the last firms I pitched. Uh, I pitched Charles Hudson, who now is at Precursor. He's left to start his own fund. Mm. Um, I had pitched Jeff previously for Pursuit. He had turned me down, uh, but you know, remembered me like, oh, that guy. Oh, and then you went to Facebook. Wow. Okay. So he uh, he did not even. I don't even think he read our pitch deck. But Charles liked it. And then the Monday following, uh, I met with the partner meeting at Uncork, and I got a term sheet Monday night. So on the third week, Monday night, wow. I got a term sheet. And so I was like, cool. So I turned around and I, uh, well, one, I negotiated with Jeff because I was like, listen, we've already got like offers to buy the company for more than the pre-money. So we kind of agreed on a, a price. And then I turned around and I said, anyone else want to give me a term sheet? No one else wanted to give me a term sheet, but everyone else wanted to uh, join the round. This is a dynamic I didn't realize at the time where it's like early stage, like, like seed rounds is like half from the term sheet. And then everyone else is just fighting over the rest of the allocation. And so... I very quickly went from like, oh my God, we're not gonna be able to raise to like, we had like way oversubscribed. We had like four point something million for like a 1.7 million round. And I was like, wow, what a lemming effect. This is fascinating to, to observe. <laughs> so that's always something I try to keep in mind too for, you know, your question, like, how do you get through it? You just got to remember that there are a bunch of odd dynamics involved in all of this and you just do the best you can and and, and see what comes out of it. So yeah, but Uncork was an awesome partner for us. And so yeah, they, they uh, were a great seed investor to get on board. All right, you did TechCrunch, you launched, and then um, you got more users. What a great audience for you to, to talk about Docsend with. And then soon after you raised a series, a series A, $8 million. Mm-hmm. What, was, what happened between those two periods? How did, it, how did growth and product change? That's a great question. And the story is a funny one. I don't think I've ever told this story, but um, <laughs> on a podcast, when I was leaving uh, Facebook and decided to go, you know, join Dave and Tony, I also kind of like looked around in the market and kind of asked myself, what, what do I want to do? I kind of briefly considered venture and uh, August Capital was a firm where I had uh, kind of interviewed. And it, for anyone who's ever interviewed for like VC jobs, they end up being like kind of you know, pretty informal, get to know each other type of things. Um, and so I was interviewing with one of the partners there. And then I said, Hey, you know what? I'm just going to go do this thing. I didn't even get an offer to the offer stage from them, but kept in touch with the firm. Um, and then we also pitched that firm August capital for, uh, our seed round, but they said, we're too early. And I said, that makes sense. You guys, your fund is way too big. You, you do A's and B's like this. So, and then, uh, 
fast forward like a couple months and the you know, Howard who ended up be leading the investment and being on our board for the whole length of the company. He's like, he just kept getting Docsend links from random entrepreneurs <laughs> and they were raving about it. And so, um, we only have, we had a very small amount of revenue in 2015, but Howard basically came in and preempted our series a, and it was, uh, it, you know, we agreed on a, a price and terms and, I've asked some other people who are in VC and they said, listen, you've got, this is a, just a bet he's making on you. You don't have the traction it required to raise this much money. And I was like, well, we're going to take the money. We might need it later. We're still going to like be thoughtful about how we build it. But uh, I'm so glad mm -hmm. that we did like having that cushion in there was, was really helpful. But yeah, that was, uh, it was, it was fortunate just to, to keep in touch. And then the, yeah, for the, the series a, like there are all sorts of different stories about how people get that deal done. Like for us, that just happened to be how it worked out for us. I read that when you worked at Facebook, Chris Cox had the advice that at Facebook, they were watching users run into walls and then building product features that break down those walls. Did you do the same? Were you looking to see where people got stuck, where they had problems, and that's how you knew what to add? Oh, 100%. I, I should also say that I'm so appreciative of the time I got to spend at Facebook uh, for a couple of years because especially in their early days, they had such good engineering culture and they had like just a, such great product management like team where, you know, yeah, get the, you know, Chris and I were actually in the same frat at Stanford years ago, which is really funny to me. Um, but yeah, Chris is such an amazing product leader, but huh. yeah, I learned a lot. And that was certainly one of them, yeah. which is observe your users and like, what are they doing? And so a lot of the innovation at Docsend, it was just by observing our users and what were they trying to do and like, just continuing to be curious and then wondering like, well, what can software help with here? And then just kind of, I call it like a trail of breadcrumbs, just kind of following the trail down the road. There was one period where you told our producer, just watching what they're doing on the software wasn't enough. You had to actually go and talk to them. That was it. Am I right about oh, that? Oh, yeah, for sure. For where... sure. Yeah. Like data is data. You can even do, you know, capture their session. You can kind of see what they're clicking around on. But uh, I've always loved talking to Docsend users and, you know, just learning about their businesses. Like, <laughs> um, like I'll give you one example. When we were in 2018 redoing all of our uh, pricing, packaging, and positioning, kind of coming up with the concept of Docsend today. Um, same product, but we were trying to like figure out because we didn't want to go sell to big sales teams exclusively. We wanted to do more of like a product of growth approach. Interviewed hundreds of customers. I was talking to one managing director of an investment bank in Toronto, and uh, they had a huge amount of usage on it. I was like, wow, you, you really like the software. What do you use it for? He's like, well, I email the attachment to my secretary. She uploads it into Docsend. She sends me back a link. I then send the link to the potential ah. client. And then she sends me screenshots of their like viewing behavior. And I was like, huh. <laughs> and, uh, and he's like, the crazy thing is that we don't pay you. I'm like, well, no, your secretary pays us $10 a month. He's like, like I said, we don't pay you. <laughs> we were just charging him <laughs> way too little. And so that informed a couple of things. One is on the advanced plan for docs. And there's a three seat minimum because we found a lot of like these firms were like sharing logins when, I mean, come on. And there's also just a really high willingness to pay. And a lot of these like use cases. And in some cases, actually, we found that people didn't trust us because we were charging them too little money, which is fascinating to me. So when we mm -hmm. increased pricing in 2018, conversion went up, which is bizarre. And so, wow. and none of these things yeah. would have been discoverable if I'd just been looking at the data. This like could only happen by going and having a lot of conversations with a whole bunch of people and just being curious.
you were starting to say why you didn't charge for the first few years. And I interrupted because I wanted to get more details on the first few years. Let's go into, into why you didn't charge. Freemium was already a thing by then. Yeah. And we thought, okay, Docsend is going to be classic freemium. It's going to be huge. And what we decided and discovered was that, oh, well, there is a smaller market with much higher urgency. And it just seemed like the right decision to go after the smaller market with more urgency. And we discovered this is only businesses using it and businesses sending information to other businesses. This is just clearly something that should be like a paid only thing, not freemium. So we changed our, our freemium model. Uh, we actually still have a hidden free tier where if you stop paying us or cancel, we downgrade you to this free tier. So like your account is still there and you can get back back into it. Um, mm. But but yeah, that, we had a lot of evolution in our thinking around that where, you know, is it freemium? Like how much is enough? And so I have always since then urged entrepreneurs that I invest in or advise or just even chat with to really think about pricing, packaging, positioning, like all these like businessy things early in their company, because especially for a group of technical founders, it's tempting to build a great product, but I didn't realize the degree to which you need all these other things, not just a great product, if you're going to end up with a great business at the end of the day. And so when you talk about packaging, for example, and positioning, how did you change that? So the first version of Docsend was just like document analytics. That was pretty much it. <laughs> and it was uh, free, open to everyone. And then we're like, okay, oh, wow. And then uh, some people are using it for this. Some people are using it for that. Uh, we sold a couple like 50K contracts to larger sales teams. And so then we're like, okay, we're going to go just do that. We're going to sell into sales enablement. So then we changed our marketing site to just like sales enablement, call us for pricing, mm. talk to sales type of thing. And then when we saw all these signs, like people tried to get into the enterprise tier just over support. So our like support people were selling more software than like our salespeople. And then I was like, okay, well, this is wonky. I don't think, you know, this upmarket thing is like where our product shines. And so we uh, redid everything. After all these like interviews, I came up with the concept that our brand promises control. That's what people are buying. And it's mm. not like we're just going to be sales. We're just going to be fundraising. We're just going to be account management. We're just going to be financial services. We're kind of all these things that's just in the user base because these are the people who gravitate to the product. And in order to get the early adopters, they'll use it no matter what, as evidenced by you know, investment bankers in Toronto signing up for a product that said sales enablement. They're like, no, no, no. I know what your product does. Like, I'm, I know it's for me, even though we like just said on the market, it's not for you. But for later adopters, they kind of need to come to the site and see someone saying, hey, it's for you. So it's a horizontal technology that we market vertically. Like that's what we came up with for Docsend with a brand promise around control. And so if you go to our website now, you'll see like, hey, all these different use cases for the technology, which at the time was a little different. Like we didn't see as many companies doing that, but fast forward even just a few years and I'm starting to see a lot more companies take that approach. Control and insights is what stands out for me on the homepage now. Yeah. That, that combination. Um, you also had a finance tier. Can you tell the story about the finance tier? Yeah, sure. So pricing and packaging are a dark art. You can pay companies tons of money to do all the research in the world around pricing and packaging. 
I don't know if you get incremental gains doing that. Dropbox has a whole team internally just devoted to pricing, which makes sense, especially at Dropbox size. But for us, we couldn't afford it, and it wasn't even clear if it was the right answer. So after doing all these interviews and realizing, like, okay, we're going to make everything self-serve, um, so we, we had, like, a $10 plan and a $30 plan. We got rid of the $30 plan. The average that our sales team was selling in to, like, other sales teams was $45 a user a month. So we didn't know what to do with the $10 plan, so we left it. So then it was $10 a month per user and then $45 a month per user. And that just looked a little wonky. And so we're like, okay, let's put in a third plan. Uh -huh. And just for symmetry, we're going to say $150 uh, a month. Um, <laughs> but it comes with three seats included, so it's basically the same price as the standard plan, the kind uh -huh. of middle one. And then eh, this kind of like roughly looks nice. And then there's enterprise call us, but like we're not really focused on that. And at first we called that the finance plan and we didn't put any differentiation in it that we didn't actually have any other features in that plan. And so then we, we launched it and we were hoping that, you know, everyone's going to pick the middle one at 45. And so that was the idea is like everything being sold through a sales team. It's just going to be sold direct on the website. You don't need to talk to anybody. You can just sign up. That's clearly what people want here. And we were shocked when people started paying us for the finance plan. <laughs> and so then I had to go back and talk to users and be like, what is it that you were looking for <laughs> in this plan? Yeah. And so we added a lot of features around dynamic watermarking, um, like allow lists or disallow lists. Um, there are just a lot of security features um, that are kind of more data roomy. And they also wanted data rooms. So we started building all that out. And then we went back and re-looked at those users and realized like, huh, only 30% of them would be in any flavor of finance, shockingly. And so then we had a little internal debate and we changed the name of it to advanced. And so if we had not put that up there, I don't think we would have ever found that out. I was telling our team that it's, it, we called it the Eddie Bauer plan. Because Eddie Bauer, or sorry, the Ford Explorer had an Eddie Bauer version that was just way more expensive and that car didn't sell a lot yeah. but the previous most expensive one sold a lot more which is a thing that happens in pricing because it looked less expensive in comparison right exactly yeah and we thought that the standard yeah. that what would happen is that people would buy the standard plan in fact everyone bought the eddie bauer car or a lot of people did and that was what was so surprising to us yeah and then that taught you what they were looking for, what they were expecting when they were thinking about finance. And then you knew to start to build that. And by the way, you mentioned data room. Data room is like a virtual hard drive with security features <laughs> on it. Am I right? That's a great question. So there's this legacy industry called virtual data rooms. It's a holdover from the olden days of like pre-internet where if uh, you know a banker is representing a client selling their business, uh, prospective buyers would have to come to a physical room and read the documents in that room and those documents could not leave that room. And so then this went online, became the online mm -hmm. analogy of, of that, that's called virtual data room. It's about two and a half billion a year in spend. A lot of people don't know what a, a VDR is, um, but for the average person, what they want is a folder, like a shareable folder with security features, with access controls, uh, and analytics. That's what that's what they want. And so it might be the case that you only get access to the first third of this folder. Someone else gets access to the second two thirds of it. I can give access to nine different people. I can control things independently for what they can see or not see. Uh, I can have you sign an NDA before you get in or not. And like that, that nuance, uh, even if people don't know what to call it, is often what they want. And that's what I am referring to when I say data room for the feature set that, that Doctone eventually built out. All right. My second sponsor is Masterworks. Do you know Masterworks, Russ? It's okay to say I no. I don't think so, I feel no. like I'm introducing them to a lot of new guests. All right. Here's what they noticed. They noticed that a lot of people, when they get rich, 
they start to invest in art. Why? Partially because they just love the beauty of it and they want to support art and have it around them. But the other reason is art withstands the test of time. If you look at the companies that were on the Dow Jones Industrial Average when it first launched, many of them are gone now. But the artists that have been around for since before we were born around that time are still up and running. Russ, I just saw your face do something. Everything okay? We're going a little longer than expected. Okay. Anyway, that's why they're doing it. Art holds up. The problem is art is very expensive and it's hard to, to secure. And so what Masterworks decided to do was get people together, buy art together, securitize it, and then allow multiple people to own a piece of art. And then you can buy into art without buying the whole piece of uh, artwork. That's what Masterworks is all about. Hundreds of thousands of people are already members of Masterworks. If anyone in my audience is interested in getting into this, if you're curious about it, you can do what I did. You can just start by having a conversation with Masterworks. They will explain it all to you, answer your questions, give you the, um, an understanding of how easy it is to get involved with it. All you have to do is go to masterworks.art slash Mixergy, masterworks.art slash Mixergy to get started. See important regulation A disclosures at masterworks.io slash CD. Why did you go into, um, into enterprise sales if this wasn't really your thing? It feels like there was something going on with profits that was leading you there from my understanding. Right. So I often remind other entrepreneurs about this, especially first-time entrepreneurs. Like at the end of the day, anyone starting uh, a company needs to make a real business out of it. <laughs> Like, you know, like, and that can happen sooner or later, depending on, you know, how much capital you're able to raise. But for us, our investors said, hey, you, you got to start making some money. And I think the last few years might be odd in the sense that there was so much capital in the market that people could just not make money and, and just raise a lot of money. Um, mm, so, yeah, you know, for uh, I think for better, uh, we were pushed to make money after the first couple of years, or at least have a business plan. And I would highly encourage entrepreneurs to do that. And the self-serve was kind of puttering along at $10 a user a month, but then, you know, selling a couple of 50, hundred K contracts, you know, I was like, Oh, this is promising. And our investors like, yeah, you should just do that. And, you know, to the credit of the space, like there is a whole sales enablement space now and people are making a ton of money off of that. And I think that would have been a valid direction for us to go in, except that me and my co-founders are not, you know, enterprise sales natives. And the way we'd been building Docsend was for the end user, not the economic buyer. And so we were able to win deals, but our average cost of sale was about $19,000. We had a whole outbound team of SDRs and AEs and it, it would have been fine normally if our competitors hadn't raised a ton of money. And so we kind of got outraised in that vertical. And so there are some, some tough lessons around that. I feel privileged to have survived that period for, for Doxen, but you know, it's not all, you know, warm and fuzzies and startup land when businesses are competing with each other. What's going on? You use the word mean, I think with our producer. How, what did they do? What were they doing that was so aggressive? Did they find out that you were in the bidding and then undercut you even to lose money? Was it something like that? What were they doing? I'll give you one example. So we're, we're selling to mm -hmm. a company and, uh, I, I think I, I don't think it matters. It's the fastly like, um, and then, uh, mm -hmm. what happened was we, there's a person internally that's overseeing the kind of, um, 
trialing out different so- softwares to like figure out like what's their sales team going to send attachments with, you know, how do you find and send documents like sales collateral? And so the person kind of overseeing the trial, uh, we work with them on the criteria. And if you've read a hard thing about hard things, you know, it, it talks about, you know, like you got to win the criteria, otherwise you, you kind of lose the deal. And so you're going negotiating the criteria and then, you know, we take the, go through the effort of rolling out the software across salespeople, getting all their feedback and, oh my God, we won. The salespeople liked our software the best. Awesome. And then what happened was that we lost the deal because that person overseeing the evaluation they're like the person who hired them into the company in a different exact role, not even like a different department, um, uh, was friends with someone at a competitor and someone on that company's board had like asked them for a favor and then they'd heard that we were in market. And so then, you know, the person who ran the evaluation was like, uh, if it's that important to you, sure, we'll, we'll go with the other one. They, they seem like they were okay-ish. Uh, and so then yeah. at the last minute, we lost the deal in like a very targeted way. And so that's the sort of thing where I'm like, oh my gosh, we built the better software. We won the evaluation. We lost the deal. <laughs> and if you fill up every single day with experiences like that, it's it's not ideal in my mind. So I've got nothing against enterprise software, but for Docsend, what ended up winning at the end of the day was the self-serve product-led growth motion that we've got. And I even told our company this. I was like, if this is the only business option we had, we could make it work. But because we have this other go-to-market motion that works better, like, let's do that one. It's got really high margins. There's a low cost of sale. It's got all mm-hmm. these awesome properties. Um, but but yeah, the, the the reason I use the word mean is that, yeah, especially in enterprise sales, if you've got like a, a really kind of neck and neck competitor, it can get it can get pretty heated in in like those sales and uh, and that, that attracts a certain type of temperament I would say and a certain type of company wins there. Let's talk about why you sold. What led you to start looking for a sale? I just don't know. Well, we did not uh, look for a sale. We had another public company that came to me. The CEO came to me and he said, "Russ, I need to need to sell your company. I want to buy your company." And I was like, "Huh." Uh, I think we're actually, we're actually doing pretty well. So that, that's okay. Um, I should also note that I think part of the CEO's job is thinking at least a little bit about outcomes. And so, like I told you, I had, even when we were starting docs, I went around to everyone else who I thought should build it and you know, gave them the pitch on it. And then we went off and build it, but I kept in touch with those companies. And so we were kind of like on their radar, not because like I had like a plan to sell the company or something like that. My view on exit strategy is like, don't bother with one, just build enough value and good things will happen. <laughs> if you're fortunate, maybe IPO someday. Uh, but if you build a good business, like you're going to have optionality there. And so I kept in touch. He came to me, said, I need to buy your company. He's like, oh man, this is going to be more expensive than I thought. And so he got pretty close to a number that my co-founders and I thought would have been reasonable. I had a relationship with Dropbox from before because I interned there in 2010 and I tracked down Drew and I said, let me work for you. And he said, fine. And I had a great summer there. Uh, And so, you know, I went back to Dropbox and I said, "Uh, this other company might buy us. They're getting pretty close to a number we might accept. Like, is this something that would be a fit for you? And they're like, let's check internally. They checked internally. They're like, yeah, yeah, it is. (laughs) And so they came back with a number that was higher. And so went to the board. They were like, sure. Went to co-founders. They're like, yeah. And then we did it. And then we signed LOI and it took three weeks of diligence. Like Docsend was a very, and still is a very clean company in the sense that, you know, we've just been really buttoned up from the beginning. So there's not a lot of like, there aren't really, weren't any skeletons and closets that, that required cleaning up. So it felt very short and also very long because those are very long days going from like, 
independent company to like, oh, we got bought. <laughs> so. <laughs> Set for life. Fair to say? Yeah, we only raised 15 million total for Docsend. And I'm very mm -hmm. proud that we beat the IRR of all the funds that were investors as well. And then also Dropbox is super happy with it. So it's one of those, and it being one of those deals yeah. where it's kind of like classic Silicon Valley software. Everyone made money, really useful product, doing well, solves a real problem in the world. And so, um, yeah, it, it feels like a, it, was a, it was a good outcome and something I'm, I'm proud of. Is, did you get into the space because of your uncle? Like, is this com just coming back to the original motivation? I heard that your uncle said to you, if you really want to do well, go pick the hardest thing that you can study in school. And is that why you got into electric engineering? Is that why you got into tech? That that was the hardest thing that you could spend your days on? <laughs> yeah, I had in my, I grew up in South Dakota and I had one uncle who worked in tech in the kind of like nineties and, and, uh, that was my only connection. That's why I went to, to Stanford actually kind of came out and visited and was like, wow, this is awesome. And I didn't know I wanted to be in tech when I came out wow. to Stanford, but yeah, I got that advice. And tech wasn't what it is today. This is before Mark Andreessen, before Netscape, before Jeff Bezos was. Yeah, I graduated from high school in 2002. So that's, uh, that's when I got to Stanford mm -hmm. and the prevailing advice at the time was like, everything's gonna get outsourced to India. Don't bother studying computer science. Like we just, we missed it mm -hmm. out. We missed out on everything. The dot com, it's all done. Just like you're saying, everything has been built. <laughs> Don't <Okay>. even bother. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I wasn't sure I wanted to major in, uh, but then yeah, based on this advice, I was like, yeah, I should study engineering. Um, I want to you know, get a job afterwards. I've always loved, you know, engineering and math. And so started in uh, electrical engineering and then pretty quickly realized that I just personally gravitated to the software side of things more. Uh, software is just really fun for a variety of reasons for me. Um, but yeah, I thought that was good advice uh, from that uncle around, you know, like, yeah, sure. You can go back and learn to be a software engineer later. Um, in my case, like, if I didn't major in that, what would I have majored in? Like history, I find history fascinating. I, you know, read every book David McCall has ever written type of thing. But I thought, you know, while I'm at Stanford, the world-renowned university, I might as well take advantage of, you know, what they're best at. And that happened to be, you know, computer science. Damn, that worked out well. All right. I hope you'll tell me when you're ready, what you're going to be doing next. I know you're with Dropbox. I know that you're there. I see the company's growing. It's not like you just... You sold and everything just, I don't know, got no, neglected. No, yeah, the, no, they're well. investing in it. The, the team's happy. The there. product's done super well for them. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of alignment in both the go-to-market model. And it continues to be the case that, like, I think Dropbox should have built a Docsend-like product many years ago. And they did not. They did the build by partner-like math, and they ended up buying um, and mm -hmm. so, yeah, there's, there's a lot to do in terms of team integration, technology integration. So there's a lot to work through there, but yeah, as for me up next, I, you know, probably, uh, will take off some time to travel. You know, I think, I think I've earned that at this point and then I'd be happy to let you know, yeah. like what I, what I gravitate towards next. What kind of travel? What kind of travel? Uh, I never took a gap year. So I'm, uh, you know, like after high school, so I'm like, I should do that. So yeah, my wife and I. Just go travel, go like the Galapagos way. is on the list, Israel. Um, I want to go do some uh, great walks in New Zealand. So there's there's no shortage uh, mm. of kind of places to run around and, and go see. Not surprisingly, running a startup, you don't have as much time for kind of annual vacation as you know, you'd like. And so for me, I'm like, yeah, I've got some pent-up travel to, to go run around and do, which will be fun. 
All right. Thanks so much for being on here. What a killer story. What killer experience. I'm so glad to know you and to see all this happen. The, what's your personal site or how can people connect with you directly? Um, I'm just Russ at Dachshund.com or Russ at Dropbox.com or you can follow me on Twitter or yeah. you can uh, add me on LinkedIn. Um, so I'm not, I'm not too hard to find on the internet. All right. Right on, Russ. Thanks so much for being on here. Thank, Thank you. you, everyone. Bye.